0: Man, as you grab a seat, uh, you can turn to Matthew chapter one. Uh, we're going to continue in the book of Matthew this morning. Matthew chapter one, verses eighteen through twenty-five. Uh, and uh, I guess after the last couple of days, it's, uh, the feeling of Christmas is getting a little bit closer, isn't it? Uh, and all those Yuletide feelings that are uh, that you have behind the shovel—pretty uh, uh, exciting times. Uh, welcome to winter in Montana. Uh, this morning, uh, as I said, we're going to continue in Matthew chapter 1 in verses 18 through 25. Uh, last week, uh, in verses 1 through 17, we looked at uh, and saw the connection between Jesus and Abraham and David and, and, and this expectation that is laid throughout the book of Matthew that Jesus is this coming king who will sit and uh, sit on the throne of David, but also establish the throne of David. Forever, Uh, in verses eighteen through twenty-five, then we move from kind of the genealogical background of of where Jesus is coming from in his earthly line. From his, uh, from from, uh, uh, sorry, in Matthew it it tracks with Joseph's genealogy, and Luke it tracks with Mary's genealogy. Both of them kind of laying out how Jesus is attached um, and, and how God worked through history to reveal Him. Um, and in Matthew chapter 1 verses 18 through 25 the, the Matthew shifts focus just a little bit to go from just the the cold hard genealogical family tree to now uh, looking at how it is uh, that the news of Jesus's uh, conception is, is shared uh, and it's interesting that again in Matthew this is the perspective that Matthew gives is different again than Luke. Luke is going to look at uh, this, the perspective from Mary's side of things. Uh, the angelic uh, visit to Mary, uh, the telling Mary who Jesus will be. And in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, uh, we get a little bit more on the back end. So uh, we don't get all of the details about Mary going to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who is John the Baptist's mother. We don't get the news of, of John the Baptist leaping in, in Elizabeth's womb at the sight of Mary when she comes into her presence. Uh, we don't get Mary's song of praise that is laid out in Luke. Instead, we get on the back end of that after Mary is found to be with child. Uh, we start to pick up with what it looks like from Joseph's perspective. Uh, so, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, um, and we'll pick up there. We're going to look, uh, uh, pull this into uh, the Old Testament to see why Matthew references what he does. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, but also see, uh, what is the good news that is shared with Joseph that is good news, not just for the people of Israel, but good news for you and for me. So Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 18, as we as we just start walking through this passage, verse 18 uh, indicates to us that Jesus' birth is special, not just because of the genealogical side from, from verses 2 through 16 that we looked at last week, not just because he is uh, in the line of David, but what is unique right from the beginning in verse 18 is that Jesus is not begotten, in the same way that you read it over and over and over again in verses 2 through 16. All right? And In verses 2 through 16 it is, this person was the father, or this person begot this person. This person begot this person. This person begot this person. right? And, and we could do that however many, uh, there's uh, 42 of those. We could do that. Hmm. But then you get to Jesus and it says, when Mary was betrothed to Joseph, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, like, we, we have read that. Here's the challenge, I think, of Christmas. If we, if we just push pause for half a second. The, the challenge of Christmas is you and I very likely have read these passages every year or heard them every year of your life as long as you have been maybe not even really that involved in church. Right? Like, if, you, if all you ever did as a child was go to church on Christmas and Easter, you're familiar with kind of the, the the underarching or overarching theme of Jesus's virgin birth right I, and the challenge of that is is that you and I read verse 18 and we just kind of go yeah that sounds about right Like, push pause what do you mean that sounds right how many of y'all have ever gotten a, like a birth announcement from somebody like for a baby shower? And, and maybe that baby shower was like, you know, like, to celebrate the child of this mom and this dad. Right? How many of you have ever gotten one of those that's like, come celebrate this baby shower of this mom and this baby that is conceived of the Holy Spirit? Yeah. How many of you, if your friend ever told you, ladies, if your friend ever came to you and said, guess what, I'm expecting. And your initial response was, is it the Holy Spirit? <laughs> that's not just like a modern thing that you would never ask that question, right? I, I know we're 2,000 years down the road, but 2,000 years ago, they knew where babies came from, right? Which is why we see Joseph's response is, uh-oh, Mary is with child, and I know I'm not the father. So as we read through this, Joseph's initial thought is not, that sounds about right, God just caused something miraculous to happen inside of her. Let's roll with that. His initial response is what your initial response would be. Mary, that's not how these things work. (laughs) But the context of it is, so it says the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, and again, we we need to stop for just a second, because uh, our idea of betrothal in our culture is different than betrothal from Jesus' time. Right, so betrothal for us is like, it, it's it's serious, right? Like, we have every intention to get married, but like, it, it, things are not necessarily, they're not legally in place yet. It's just a it's a, it's a a declaration between uh, a guy and a girl, we're going to get married, right? And they start to make plans, but at any point, either one of those goes, nah, cold feet, not going to do it. Or, no, nah, something happened, uh, I'm in a Hallmark movie and some guy in flannel just showed up and I think I'll marry him instead. <laughs> I know, like, he used to be a really big punk when we were five, but now he's handsome and he's charming. Even though he was a at the beginning, Summed him up all for you. You can, you don't have to watch any of this. Year. But a loose attachment, right? That is that is built towards like, yeah, everybody's anticipating. As soon as you announce uh, that the, there's an engagement, like, oh, there's a marriage coming. But it's not legal in any way. It's not legally binding. The the families, uh, while they'll be disappointed and they'll be hurt if the the arrangement falls apart, it's not legal in any way. At Jesus' time frame, in the time frame of the Bible, betrothal or engagement is a legal thing. Like legally, from a legal perspective, Joseph and Mary are already married even though they're not living together. She's still in her family's house, and he's preparing a place for her to bring her into the family. They're legally married. People refer to them as husband and wife, but they haven't consummated the marriage, and they're not. They're like, the, the last little hoop to jump through hasn't happened yet. Okay? And it's within this framework. Legally betrothed. Legally arranged. Like, everything's done except for them moving in together, consummating the marriage. And at this point, she's betrothed to Joseph, and it's found that she is pregnant. And what's interesting, again, is that Matthew's gospel doesn't go into all that Luke chapter 1, verses 28 through 38 give us, or 1, 28 through 34, where we see the angel show up and visit Mary and announce to her that she is going to be conceiving the Son of God. We don't get the three-month visit with her cousin Elizabeth. We don't get Mary's response of, how can this be? And, and, and the negotiation factor of like, hold on a second. How is it that I'm going to have a child when I've never known somebody? All we get is, it's found that she is with child from the Holy Spirit. And if, I think it's important that we stop here again. Because again, you and I read this. Maybe we hear it over and over again every year, every year, every year. And again, our, and we have lost... The shock and awe of that statement. She's found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, and maybe it's possible that for somebody here this morning, you go, "Okay, that's that's too much." I can get around a lot of things that the Bible says, but but again, took science class. That's not that's not how it works. And this is a point where it's like. I just don't believe that God could do that. And I want to cause us, ask us to step back for just a moment and ask Do we believe God's word in its entirety? And Do we believe that what it reveals about God is true? Namely, that God is all powerful and able to do whatever He chooses. So if by faith we go back to Genesis chapter 1 and we say, I believe, somehow, I don't understand how this works, but somehow, the God of all the universe just spoke things that were not into being. So that everything that I interact with in the world now is caused because God spoke it and wanted it to happen. Like, And, and, and we could we could play this back and, and roll it all the way back. You go, well, he didn't make this chair. He made everything that that chair is made out of. <laughs> he didn't make his clothes. He made everything your clothes are made out of. And he gave people the ability to figure out how to put a chair together or how to weave clothes together. Like, that all came from not them. That came from God. And that same God who, who just spoke things into to being, that he is big enough and powerful enough just to speak things and, boom, grizzly bear. Perfectly put together in all of its complexity. says, boom, let there be light. And there is light. In all of the ways that it works. Let there be a sun and a moon, and, and, and doing all of the gravitational weird things that those things do. And he's big enough to just speak it into motion, and it's there. That same God, is he not capable of saying to a virgin womb, have a child? That's, we're talking about the same God. The same God who speaks nothingness, like something into nothing, is the same God who speaks to Mary and says, be with child." And so, one of the scandalous things that, this that, viewed when we lived in Senegal, uh, the, the reason that uh, a lot of Muslim people can't wrap their head around that is is they, they go, that I, I can't fathom a God who would have sexual relations with a woman like this. And I go, me neither, that is scandalous. But step back for a moment and say, could an all-powerful God say, bear child. <clears throat> do we believe that God can do that? Even though you and I have never seen it happen never heard of it happen outside of Matthew chapter 1. Yeah, it's capable. We can't duplicate it, we can't explain it outside of a God who is able. And so it's in this context, right, an all-powerful God causes Mary to be with child just because he, he wants her to. Joseph finds out about it, and what's interesting is that Joseph's initial thought again is not like your. are it's exactly the same as your and my initial inclination would be. Which is, this is not a supernatural work of God. And so Joseph begins to work the problem. Probably in the same way that you and I would work the problem. This is the reality. How do we deal with it? And and Joseph's reality is framed within the framework of he's he's a just man and, and, and he he, so he's a law-abiding, he's righteous, he, he, he desires to do what is right before the Lord, but he also is unwilling to put her to shame. Because under the Old Testament context of the law, he has every legal right to bring her out in front of the community, and they could put her to death for adultery. And then they would what they ought to also do is look for the person responsible, and then he would also be put to death. But we see something about Joseph that he he desires to do what is right because he's just, and yet at the same time he has an eye towards caring for Mary and not putting her to shame, and so he resolves to divorce her quietly. So he still is resolving to do what is right according to the law, but he is not willing or does not desire to go to the full extent of what the law allows. The law doesn't require him to put her to death, but he has every legal right to do so. And it's interesting, is it says in verse 20, as he considers these things, you imagine, have you ever had like a really life-shaking moment and you're sitting there working all of the jelly beans and trying to figure out what you're supposed to do? Have you ever had one of those? Snow globe, shaken up, and you sitting there going, okay, what is life and how do we move forward in this? There's Joseph. Everything turned upside down. Considering all of the things and, and what he's going to do within the resources available to him. Which is where, I think it's a, still, a, a teenagers, you correct me if I'm wrong. I think this is still your favorite word in the Bible since I taught on it the last time. Behold. Because last time I screamed it. All right? Because behold is a word that gets your attention. It's operating outside of the ordinary. It is all of a sudden like, I'm doing this and behold. Something different. Right? In the midst of Joseph's doing all that he can do, it says, Behold, an angel of the Lord appears to him and says, Stop. All that you can do and all you're figuring is backwards. It's wrong because you don't have all of the information. Which is interesting to us. That, uh, I think there's, there's something that you and I could take and hang our hat on with that, is that, that. That God's word is necessary for us to get to God's solutions for our problems. You and I, working them on our own, are we're not going to get to God-honoring solutions just on our own ability outside of God's word being revealed to us. We're not that smart of a people. And so the angel shares with Joseph the information that he needs in order to do the thing that God would have him to do. Outside of the angelic visit, Joseph does a just, merciful thing. But he doesn't do, apart from the angel speaking to him, he doesn't get to the place of saying, I'm sticking with this lady. She goes back to her family, they're just divorced quietly, right? Like, outside of God revealing it, and outside of us hearing God's word, we don't get to God honoring solutions on our own. Are we leaning on her? Are we desperately recognizing our need for God to speak through his word? To give us the wisdom that you and I don't possess on our own. And what's interesting is when the angel speaks to him, he says, Joseph, son of David. Now, if you remember last week, this, this, this hope of the, the throne of David being reestablished. I doubt, very likely or very highly, that when Joseph was in trouble as a child, that his mother would cry out, Joseph, son of David? <laughs> like, it was, like, I don't think it's like his middle name. I I doubt very highly that people walk around, Joseph, son of David, right? He's at the Starbucks counter. Joseph, son of David. That's probably not something that he just, like, that that everybody is using and speaking about each other. So the angel says to him something that ought to go, that's unique, even though he like he might have known that he was in the line of David, but it's probably not something that was spoken to him or about him all the time. In fact, later on when people are talking about him, they just go, "Isn't that the carpenter?" Like, they don't go, "Hey, isn't that the guy that maybe has like our messianic hopes are hinging on that guy?" You know, he's just a carpenter, and it's, so by extension, they say about Jesus, "Isn't that just the carpenter's kid?" Like nobody is looking at Joseph and going, "You are." The one on whom all of our hopes are hinging and resting on. But Joseph, son of David. And that ought to give Joseph an idea of what is coming next. Or why this crazy pregnancy is taking place. It says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife with a reason. For or because that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Not only that, but she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Conceived of the Holy Spirit for a special purpose, and we're going to revisit part of that phrase here in just a moment after we deal with verses 22 through 25. Because it says right off of the tail end of that, so don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, she'll bear a son, who will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then Matthew does something interesting that he's going to do five more times in the next four, or well, five times total, four times in the next four passages as well. Where he's going to make a statement. All of this took place to fulfill what was written or spoken by the prophet. And what was spoken by the prophet is, is out of Isaiah chapter... Seven, he says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Well, it's interesting, and maybe you're asking the question, or maybe you haven't asked me it yet, but why does Matthew choose, well, maybe you go, it's pretty obvious why Matthew chooses this passage to say this fulfills, this, this thing about Jesus fulfills something spoken of by the prophet. But I want you to turn back to Isaiah chapter 7 for a minute, if you will, uh, if you open about almost dead center in your Bible, you're going to hit Isaiah pretty close. Uh, Isaiah is one of the major prophets of the Old Testament. So he was test- uh, he was prophesying uh, a good a solid 800 years, uh, roughly. Six to 800 years before Jesus is ever born. And in Isaiah chapters 7 through 9... Uh, Judah is in a kind of a precarious situation. I say Judah because at this point, in Isaiah's prophetic word, the kingdom of Israel, if you remember, we talked about it in the book of Joshua. There's 12 tribes. In Joshua, all 12 tribes go into the land of Israel. They take their inheritance. Down the road, God establishes, or they they beg God for a king. God allows them to have King Saul, and then uh, after King Saul is King David, and then after King David is King Solomon. Those three kings are the only three kings that reigned over all 12 tribes. Because after Solomon, uh, the kingdom was ripped in two, and, and not really in two equal parts. Ten tribes went north, or they were the ten northern tribes, established the kingdom of Israel. And the two other tribes, Judah and Benjamin, established the kingdom of Judah. And so throughout the Old Testament, that maybe in 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, you've, you've gotten hung up on that in the past. There's Israel and there's Judah. So that's in a time frame where there's ten tribes that are Israel, two tribes that are Judah. So in Isaiah chapter 7 uh, through 9, the kingdom of Judah is being raised, uh, uh, the king over Judah is a guy named Ahaz. And the context is King Ahaz has not been the king of Judah very long but if you're looking in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1, it says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem, which is the head of Judah, to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. And notice what it says in verse 2. When the house of David, in other words, so it was Ahaz and, and all of the royal house, when the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So what you have is you have Judah is uh, catching wind. of There's, there's a, a, an alliance between the Syrians and the, the nation of Israel coming to wage war against Jerusalem. And Ahaz and all the house of David are terrified. And if you continue to walk through this, you'll see why they're terrified. Because in verse 6, this is what Syria and Israel are saying about Ahaz and Judah. Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. So what they're saying is, we're going to go take over Jerusalem, and we're going to remove Ahaz, Son of David, offspring of David, and put up a different king in his place. And so the Lord sends Isaiah, the prophet, to go speak to Ahaz and to the house of David. And starting in verse 10 of Isaiah chapter 7, what the Lord says to Ahaz is, Okay, choose a sign. Choose a sign that I will show you that this is not going to take place. That the Syrians and the Israelites are not going to conquer you. They're not going to take away your kingdom. And somebody else is not going to be established in your place. And Ahaz goes, oh, no, 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 I couldn't possibly. So the Lord says to him, okay, I will give you a sign then. And you go, well, what was the sign? Starting in verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. So God gives Ahaz a sign, and and, and you go, why are we doing this when we're talking about Matthew? We're going to get there. Because there's there's an immediate thing that happens based off of God's promise in Isaiah, but it's not a full full fulfillment. It's just a partial thing. So what happens in the next couple of chapters is in Isaiah chapter 8, the Lord says to, to Isaiah, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. And I will give reliable witnesses, to Uriah the priest, and Zechariah the son of Jer- Jeberakiah to attest for me. So then this is Isaiah writing. He says, and I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Say that 12 times fast. <laughs> For before the Lord knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So so Matthew says Jesus coming in this way fulfills what was spoken by the prophet. But then you go back to the prophet and what was spoken was, was an immediate thing that would take place. Right? Judah is in imminent danger. Syria and Israel are getting ready to attack them. He says, ask for a sign. They said, we're not going to ask for a sign. He says, okay, here's the sign that you're going to be delivered, and the Assyrians are going to come and take over the the people of Syria and Israel. There's going to be a child born, and before that kid is old enough to eat or speak, this threat will be neutralized. So Isaiah has a child, and this child is assigned to Ahaz into the throne of David that God is keeping his promise to David. Now, a couple of problems with that, as far as the long-term fulfillment. You go, we'll, well... why can Matthew refer to this? The first one is, is that in, in chapter 8, verse 3, that the person that bears the child appears to be Isaiah's wife, not a virgin. And so automatically you go, like, this is, this is a sign, but is this the full sign? Is there, there's more to come. So the, the, the perfect promise is still left kind of in the balance. But in the imperfect or the immediate promise, God is delivering His people... From an imminent, immediate threat. Namely, Syria and Israel. So then, we come back to Matthew chapter 1 for just a minute now. So you have that in your back pocket. It's like, how are these two things the same, and how are these two things different? They're the same in that a child will be born. They're the same in, in which uh, the, the name Emmanuel is chosen to describe or to, 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 to give, be given to the child. But it's different because in Matthew chapter 1, and and as we walk through the Gospel of Matthew, we'll see this. Jesus is more than just a sign that God is up to something. Jesus is more than just, hey, the promise is, I'm with you and I'm doing something for you. Right? Maharshala al Hashbaz is just like, he's the visible, tangible thing. Like when people look at that kid and he's starting to speak, and he's trying to figure out how to say dad and mom. Syria and Israel are being wiped out by Assyria, but Jesus is his his ministry is is not even close to being done when he's a baby. <clears throat> he's just getting started. The second thing that you'll notice is that what is promised about Jesus is is very different than what is promised about Mahir Shalal hashbaz and that is his function. So in verse twenty one, she'll bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Now you think about this. Anybody that was coming out of a Jewish background, familiar with the Old Testament, if, you, if, if Matthew were to say to them, this fulfills what the prophet has spoken, and he quotes Isaiah chapter 7, what are they going to think? And the only yeah, that was about that kid, Isaiah's kid. This is is how God kept his promise to his people. This is how God delivered the house of David. This is how God sustained his people. What Matthew is saying is is, is that was an imperfect picture of what Jesus will do. Because what Jesus will do is not just... It would be interesting. What you might would expect for a Jewish person to understand in Jesus' time is that she will bear a son and she'll call his name Jesus because by the time he starts eating, the Romans will get kicked out. By the time that he's old enough to utter the words mom and dad, this, this immediate threat that you feel around you will be lifted. And instead, the promise that is said about Jesus is that he will, he will not deliver from an earthly kingdom, but rather he will save his people from their sins. And what's interesting is that Jesus is not just going to be a sign that God will deliver his people from his sins, but he is the very means by which God will rescue his people from their sins. Because this baby is going to be raised into the fullness of time. He's going to be without sin and he's going to go to the cross to die for the sins of his people. He's not just a, he's not just a glowing neon sign, God is up to something. He is the very tool and instrument of saving people from their sins. And if we just draw this out a little bit, what that tells us is when Joseph hears about who this child will be, of all of the ways that God could have spoken to Joseph and said, this is what Jesus will be about. Jesus will be about bringing peace between people. Jesus will be about showing perfect love to people. Jesus will be about restoring cultural things that have gone sideways. Jesus will be about restoring whatever it might be. He didn't say any of those things. Said, so, "You're going to bear a, a, a son. You're going to name him Jesus, and you're going to name him Jesus because the name Jesus means God saves, and you're going to call him God saves because He will save His people from their sins. What God determined that His people, you and I, needed more than anything else is not deliverance from whatever existential crisis we feel at the moment." What he determined that you and I most needed was a salvation and a deliverance from the sin that captivates us. Now we could, we could, we could probably uh, split hairs and say, well, all of, our, all of our existential crises and all of the junk in our lives ultimately stems from the headwaters of sin. We, you and I live in a broken world. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. You and I, our our very existence, everything that we experience in this life in some way is marred by sin. There's not a single thing that you and I will experience in this life that in some way is not touched or affected by sin. There's not a single thing. there, There is not a single thing you can attach yourself to in this life that will not remain unaffected, untouched by sin and its effects. And Jesus came to deliver his people, to save his people, not just from sin out there, but he says, but from their sins. Uh, so, So sin isn't just something that happens to us. Living in a broken world isn't something just outside of us that's affecting us negatively. It is also what we produce. It's what we're all about. Apart from God and his activity, sin is what we're really good at. It's what we bring to the table. So not only are, are all of the things that we are uh, uh, living in and being affected by touched by sin, but everything that you and I do, in some way, we are screwing up. Isn't that horrible? I, I, like, I hope that when I say that, you know, go, oh, that's a really nice, warm Christmas message. I touch stuff and it screws up. <laughs> this guy's a beacon of good news. Until we understand and recognize that, though, we will forever fall short of seeing Jesus for who He is and why He has come, and why He is good news. You think about the names that are attributed to Jesus in this short passage of Scripture. In verse 18, He is Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Anointed One. He's Jesus, the God who saves. He's Emmanuel, God with us. Spend the rest of the year just talking about those three realities. That Jesus didn't just come to be a reminder that God's at work and He really kind of likes us. He's the very means by which God pries us out of a tomb of sin and death that we can't get out of otherwise. He's the very one who comes in and shatters the teeth of our enemies in its head in a way that you and I cannot do. And it would be kind of an important question, wouldn't it then? In verse 21, where it says, You will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. If Jesus is this anointed Savior who has come, to deliver people out of their greatest adversary. To give them life from a place where they were dead in their sinnings. One of the first questions that we might ask off of verse 21, well, who is his people then? If he's going to save his people from their sins, who are his people? Is there, a, In other words, is there hope for you and for me, or are his people only... The ones that the king of David would have ruled over in the Old Testament. Now, this is where the, and, and, and the second question is, so not only are who are his people, but how does he deliver them from sin? How, do, how does he do this? How does he save? So is there hope for man, and, 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 and where does that hope come from? As we walk through the rest of Matthew, we're going to see really clearly, Jesus does a, a lot of amazing things. In order to show a watching world that he is the one who has come. He is the anointed one. He is the promised one. But the highlight of what Jesus does in the Gospels. Is the very thing that his disciples fight against the most. He goes to Jerusalem and he dies on a sinner's cross. Even though he didn't deserve to. His disciples will argue with him. Jesus is going to tell them, I'm I'm going to Jerusalem to die, and Peter will be like, over my dead body. And Jesus will say to him, Shut up, Satan. Really happy words to one of your close followers, right? Jesus comes, he delivers from sin by dying in the place of sinful people. He goes to a sinner's cross so that sinners would be let off the hook. And you go, well, which sinners? Again, who are his people? And this is the great news of the gospel. At the end of Matthew chapter 28, Jesus promises his disciples at the tail end of his ministry, after he's he's died, he's buried, he's been raised again, and he says, go and make disciples or make followers, make my people out of all nations. From all corners of the earth, go and tell people this good news. Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you know why, why does he tell them to do that? Because those people are identifying and saying, through faith, through, through what Jesus has done, I trust him. What he's done is enough. His, so his people are his people that come to him in faith, responding and saying, we'll follow Jesus. Out of every other nation, out of every other worldview, out of every other way of doing things, his people are those that say, Jesus came for me, and I'm going to follow him. And what he has done, the promise that that God gave to Joseph before he was even born, is reality in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. He's the one who will save his people from their sins. And he's able because he's the God who lives with us. John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. I'll finish here really quickly. John's, John's gospel, we talked about it last week a little bit, John's gospel is, 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 is mm-hmm. different in very many ways from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. One of those primary ways is the place that John starts where Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't start in their biography of Jesus. Because Jesus, or John starts like in the beginning, before all things were made. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then you drop down to verse 14. It says, in that same Word, capital W, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Emmanuel of Isaiah chapter 7 is the God who is with us, who is delivering us from this imminent danger of these two kings. The Emmanuel of Matthew of the New Testament is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God who took on flesh and dwelt with us even though He didn't have to. And why did He come and dwell with us? So that we might receive grace upon grace that you and I didn't deserve. When He came, To save us from our sins. So the most important question that we could ask. Out of Matthew chapter 1. John chapter 1. When we say that Jesus came to save his people from their sins. A very simple question. Do you belong to him? Is he your king? Not because of where you were born. Not because of your family tree. But because you are following him in faith saying about him and through the way you live your life, he has done for me what I could not do for myself. Are you you in the Joseph pre-vision stage where you are looking and assessing all of life and how it lays on the table and you're considering everything, trying to figure out how to make it all work in your own strength and your own power? Or are you living in the reality post-vision where Jesus has done it for you and you are to follow him in faith?